the virus is even I think people are slowly catching on to the fact that we can't get out of this individually. The only way we can get out of it is collectively. Uh -huh. Whether it's, you know, you've got to have like an 80% participation in masking to really turn the curve downward in terms of new cases. And you've got to have a certain density of vaccination immunities before herd immunity sets in. Right. It doesn't have to be necessarily absolute 100%, but it has to be the attitude we have to come to somehow or another has been said a thousand times, but we are clearly in this together and we can't get out of it except together. It's like a different level of evolution for us. You know, the early versions of mankind, you know, lived in tribes or packs, whatever you want to say, whatever group of chimpanzees is. Uh -huh. or tri and then tribes of limited size with huge amounts of natural separation from other tribes so that things could take place within a tribe's area and not affect other tribes. And that went on for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Obviously, very early on, man realized he couldn't survive on the out in this environment by himself. So the small groups formed up where they could. Uh -huh. And then at some point, it carried on until we get to a point now where we've had indicators all along the way. They were coming into a time in the existence of humans on this planet where that kind of attitude of tribalness is not going to work anymore. Because the things that like, like the coronavirus that are taking place now are on a bigger scale. That's just a microcosm of something that's even bigger. And that is environmental climate change. Nobody's going to get out of that on their own. Nobody's going to get out, of, get out of the effects of climate change in a tribe, even a pretty big tribe. Because it's what we're dealing with now, now that we've, we've at one, on the one hand reached the, the highest point of our evolution in terms of our physical presence on the planet and how we are able to operate vis-a-vis -vis the environment around us. There's now no part of the environment that we cannot directly affect. Uh -huh. And we have got to decide collectively and make whatever changes we have to make in the way we operate in order to address climate change, in order to address the COVID pandemic and come out of this. But we all have to do it. That, that attitude of that tribal attitude is just on its last legs. This is it. This is what COVID's saying. Yeah. It's what climate change is saying. Right. And the virus has even, even showed us for a while that if you do stop doing what you were doing before, assaulting the planet en masse, if you just hunker down and tuck it in for a few months, you know, we saw the photos, the things that the rivers started to clear, the canals started to clear, the air started to clear, where it had been dirty for centuries. So it, there's an answer that it's been showing us, but goodness gracious, we've got to pay attention to that answer as being out there, but it's only out there when we have a huge participation. Right, so it's a challenge, and it's a large enough challenge that it requires an effort. And so the, the thing that's in the way of that is the attitudes that we carry with us from the past that are built-in biases. Yes. And our inherited prejudices, depending on family and community and so on and so forth. Right. And we, we attach our survival to those prejudices because they're just in the fabric of our thinking when we consider what do we need to survive this epidemic. What we need is a new kind of human being. We have to live differently than we lived before. We have to undo the prejudices to, to have the, our prejudices include everyone, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> so we have the news of the vaccine begins to grow. We have, we have the surges that are showing us what we have to do. We have the, uh, thanks, interesting, we have the Thanksgiving holiday, which comes up first, which is where we think not just about ourselves, but about family, which is, and it's primarily a U.S. tradition, of course. It's followed on by the uh, Christmas time, which is where the urge is to sort of let go of our individual needs and consider others. 
but not only just others in the family, but others in the, and not only just others in the nation, but Christmas is a worldwide symbolic time of, time of some kind or another. The force of the traditions has been very strong for a long time. Yeah. Whether you pay much attention to the Santa Claus story or not, those are the trappings of a very profound archetype. And here we are coming up on Christmas. The vaccines are coming out. And I think it's an interesting juxtaposition of how are we going to treat this next step of this puzzle? Are we going to really be together as a world? And to the extent that we can do that, that's how successful we're going to be with the vaccines. That's how successful we're going to be with the climate. That's what all this is showing us. Uh-huh. Yeah, challenging indeed. And of course, not challenging not only for if you're, if you're one of the people who thinks about it, but extremely challenging if you're one of the people who's trying to avoid thinking about it, of which there are plenty. Yeah. But unless we all tow the line together, we will certainly tow it separately with poorer results, I think. I think if you're a student of philosophy or religion to any, any reasonable degree, to any sound, sane degree, contemplating the nature of reality or the nature of truth or the nature of God or whatever it is, has got to include the attitude of, well, it's got to have the attitude of inclusiveness working in it. Yeah, it, that kind of comes with the territory, right? Right, right. Can't pick and choose spiritual studies for what just what it does for you. It's not spiritual at that point and, and not healthy for you or anybody else. Yeah, in a way then it goes to the difference between spirituality and religion because we can have uh, right. religions that fight with each other. But if you get to the essence of any of the religions... Which is a religious experience. Yeah, then there's absolutely... It, I mean, it, every single one of them includes everything. Right, right. So it's an absolute truth at that point, an absolute reality. Absolute truth and not even really something you can talk about, but you can't experience as soon as you start talking about it, then it sort of gets changed around. You know, the Tao that can be described is not the eternal Tao. Sure. In words, as little Fox has said, can be a source of great misunderstanding. Right. But the experience is compelling. I remember a phrase of Carl Jung's that men create religions to actually protect themselves against religious experience. <laughs> <laughs> Doctrines and words and things like that. But there is an a truth in the religious experience. And you feel one with everyone in the midst of that experience. And that's one of the compelling aspects of it. We may not be able to talk about it directly, but we know what it's like. And it has, it's a sense of being part of every person and everything in every way, being included and including them all at the same time. Yeah, even the kind of micro insight that you get at the end of a good translation has a bit of that. Yes. And that's based on just looking around and finding what is the thing that's bugging me right now? Yeah. And it's then, based on a questioning exercise. Yeah. And then just taking that and, and digging in to find out where the reality is and then suddenly seeing that the reality of it is this big thing, which is, I mean, not <laughs> a, it's not a thing, but it's big. <laughs> yeah. Because reality has no limits. And you start, of course, that process, I mean, in order for it to give you what you're after in terms of a real answer to the question, you've got to start the process with you know, that point that is not debatable. It's not arguable. It's simply so. Whatever that point is, that point around which your mind cannot get, and of course, that's being. And that is axiomatically proven. 
Yeah. Uh, the fact that you can open your mouth and say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The point around which mine cannot get, theirs or yours. So it's a point of one mind. Yeah, yeah. Beingness is inescapable. Yeah. And it's, in, it's absolutely inclusive. It doesn't have comparative value systems. It doesn't have better or worse involved in it. It's ever-present totality of one. And it's what I am, right in the dead center of it. And it's what you are, right in the dead center of it. And we look at each other from our, from our corresponding center. Not our centers, our center. Right, yeah. Kind of like the, the two pieces of the iceberg that stick up out of the water and they wave to each other. <laughs> right. The, earth, the earthworm that looks at its other end and says, will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs> We're at a point, once again, one of those potent, potent points of possibly understanding the absolute nature of ourselves. And at the risk of setting off some evangelical somewhere, I might say the divinity of ourselves. Ah, well, yeah. We can't, the fact that some people are offended is their problem. Mm -hmm. The reality of truth, which is divinity, it doesn't really care about your opinion. And it's just there are certain people that have an, an advantage or perceive themselves as having an advantage by kind of controlling and defining what divinity is, which is laughable. Yeah. It's an unlearning process. Yeah. The truth, the study of absolute truth only progresses insofar as you get yourself out of the way of it. Yeah, that helps because, you know, you look at climate change and you look at the pandemic and these are great big terrifying things. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you just said is really important for people to remember that it all begins with you and the thing that's in your mind that's bugging you that will lead you to, to uncover things and unlearn. And the unlearning is then the truth is revealed and you don't have to create this big cosmic thing. It's, it's already there. All right. Suddenly your light is burning brighter and you can see better. You don't have to go find it. You just have to let it out which is a letting go, of course, of stop doing the things the way you were doing them, stop being who you were before. Yeah, a totally worthwhile exercise and, and something that it's doable, you know, one little bit at a time. Exactly, exactly. Change your attitude about one thing, change your habit about one thing. My roommate's struggling to quit smoking. She's managed to stop now for six weeks again, and she... Uh, I said, Sherry, next time you feel the desire for a cigarette, just ask yourself, what would a non-smoker do in this situation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Check, I mean, check out that other role. Yeah. Assume the virtue if you have it not. Ken Wacop had a process when he was quitting smoking long ago. This is in the 70s. Mm -hmm. But he actually had a pack of cigarettes in his, his pocket and... He said that using willpower was ridiculous. Willpower wouldn't work, so he uses desire power. And he would have the desire for a cigarette, and he'd reach into his pocket and get the cigarette pack out, and he'd look at it, and he'd ask himself, how much do I want this cigarette? Hmm. And then he'd ask himself, how much do I want to quit smoking? Ah. And it worked for him. <laughs> But he was Ken Walkup, right? So, <laughs> yeah, Ken followed the beat of a different drum.
I, I will never forget, and I, just, just a digression momentarily, that, that certain crown mysteries at the hotel in San Diego, the Del Coronado, when it, when it, I think it, was, it may have been at the banquet or one of the evening sessions when Ken Walkup got up and was describing the major classes of Prospero's, and he was doing plays on words of the titles. Right. And, when the, and of course, the highest class was he referred to as the clown miseries. <laughs> <laughs> you can almost see this little cloud of steam coming off of Thane, who was sitting over there on the side listening to him, to do, this, listening to him do this presentation. <laughs> Interesting guy. He was a rock hound, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. He had some great crystals. Well, actually, I think we were talking about that when I came to visit you in D.C. We were talking about Ken and his rocks. Was he still with us at that point, or had he already passed on? He may have passed recently. Yeah, okay. Trip. Yeah. Yeah. So another reminder at the end of our conversation about, you know, the kind of times we're in and the, the depth of the way that we live and the people that we love and care for and uh, the meaning of all of that. And also, it's Christmas time, and for the first time in years, really, I've really gotten into the Christmas spirit, or the holiday spirit, I should say. Uh-huh. And it feels really good. And it must, I think, be like a side effect of the kind of challenges that we're, we're up against. Interesting you should say that. I was contemplating today when I came out of, when I stopped at a market that I used to stop at frequently when I lived over on the other side to get a coffee from their coffee bar. And coming out and getting in my car, I noticed there was a little a little side street had been blocked off from San Vicente and it had a little crash fair, like kiosks, people doing their little handmade things. And, and I, I didn't have time to go by, but I thought it would be nice to stop into a place like that and see if there's just any kind of little interesting things here in the neighborhood, even though I'd have to FedEx them at this point in time to get them anywhere. And then I sort of, by having my attention drawn away to that, I realized that my attention had been focused on, again, the, the stress and strain of the pandemic the stress and strain of the election, the stress and strain of the work situation. But it sort of pulled me out of all of that, and, and I sort of felt this, I'd like to go shopping for Christmas and get somebody a gift. Yeah. Sort of like pulled me out of my inward focus and did the, what, one of the things I think that holiday season, specifically the Yuletide time or Christmas time or its surrounding celebrations does, and that is it just overrides my personal desires with the desire to give. Yeah. Think about others and say, what do they need? And, and give. I mean, we, it's good, good we should do this all year long, but at whatever level we're doing it or not, Christmas time comes and it seems to want to trigger that archetype self, which is we're coming to the end of the season, we're coming to the end of the year, we're coming to the end of the time when it's time for new beginnings and I want to feel the closeness to the other people and give. Give to those that need it now. So when we go forward and we start the new time, the new cycle, we'll all be in a little better stead. We've gotten through it so far. We've come to this time. We should really enjoy being together and recognize it with each other. And I think that does that even with the Ebenezer Scrooges of the world a little bit. Yeah. And I'm not real fond of all the commercial trappings, of course, but there is that impulse that seems to come out of the most unusual people, and that is to give. And I think there's something of the quality of the symbolic Christ consciousness in that and the birth of that that's involved. And we need something like that now at this time when we're at a turning point in dealing with some of the greatest worldwide challenges that we have faced really up to this point. So that little step that every person can take is right there. Right there. 
like sending uh, a gratogram. <laughs> yeah, I value you, you, you in my life. And on the wider scale, again, it, it's an act of inclusiveness. Right. It comes from a deep recognition inside of us that we are one. Uh-huh.